0: information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to this episode of Blue Crew Medicine. Today, we're going to talk about heart failure. Um should be an interesting one. So we've got some new guests on the podcast today, uh, some new timers. So we've got Dr. Sub Arwal. That's correct. Got it. Um, who is one of our UMC cardiology fellows, um, Fix and Starters Heart Failure Fellowship in July. Am I right? You're right. Third year, been around. I've seen him a couple times in the ER, a few, few dozen. Good dude. Glad to have him with us. And then Mark Randall who is a flight nurse for air care, been here a while, been in uh, EMS, flight medicine, CV surgery, all over the place for the last, I don't know, 30-something plus years-ish. Something like that. Um, I'm trying not to age you too much. Thank you. Flies and nights here on air care. I got
1: while. all the gray hair cut off this morning, too. so uh-huh. hey, I've got a few gray hairs,
0: too, now. <laughs> 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 yeah. So, to hey, talk about heart failure? So, Real simple, like we always do. We're going to give a little basic definition. Inability for the heart to eject adequate cardiac output to meet oxygen and metabolic requirements of the body. Super simple. When you start talking about cardiac output, we think about heart rate times stroke volume. That's the easy math. For me, heart failure is super common. We live in Mississippi. It is one of those things we have one of the highest incidents of heart failure in the country. I would argue globally. Uh, in some respects, I don't. I don't know the exact statistics, but it's uh, we see it a lot here. So when you start talking about heart failure, what immediately comes to y'all's minds? What What's something that you just think of?
1: The most common is just fluid overload. Be it right-sided or left-sided, there's going to be fluid backed up somewhere. I think something, when you said cardiac output, heart rate times stroke volume, everybody needs to notice that blood pressure was not mentioned at all. Everybody equates blood pressure with cardiac output, and that is not the case. If you get wrapped around the axle about what their blood pressure is, you're not paying attention to the important determinant that we need.
0: Think about the pump. It's a pump problem. It's not always correct. It's not everything else. Yeah.
2: So what all of you said, and and it's tough for me when you say, what do you think about heart failure? What comes to mind? Because, and it's a lot, it's a lot, you know, but I I instantly think about the patient. I think about a patient that's short of breath, you know, they're struggling to, to walk, they can't lay flat, Um, they feel absolutely terrible, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of these patients, if we don't act quickly, they go down in a spiral, and, and, you know, we can lose them if early intervention doesn't happen, and early recognition, and so, you know, I just first of all want to say thank you all for having me on the podcast, I'm excited to talk about the topic, the hardest question is what comes to my mind, because there's a lot, and hopefully we can, we can go through all of it. And, and you all can have me back so we can continue this talk.
0: So as you mentioned, the early intervention. So let's talk about the, the three big phases when you talk about heart failure. You got your initial insult. So it's some kind of myocardial insult can be any number of different things over the years. Then you have your compensatory phase and then your exhaustion of compensatory mechanisms. That's when you look at the textbook, that's what they they call it. What I think of is I got something wrong with me and it affected my heart. And then I'm going to try to think about compensating for it which could be any number of different things to mark your point about heart rate and stroke volume. I think that's a lot of it is what what is a patient doing to compensate? Could it be they have an elevated heart rate to try to compensate for a low stroke volume because their cardiac outputs up, or, or the cardiac outputs down, excuse me, any number of different things that could make that work. And then eventually, like any other pump, I always think of when I teach classes in basic paramedics or anything else, I think about fire trucks. That's where I came from, the fire service. But the pump's going to give out eventually. So how, how long can it last? How long can it make it happen until you get to that point? So we talked about identification. You mentioned a few little things. My favorite is how many pillows do you sleep with at night? That's that's the first question. That I, hey, I feel like junk. Well, how many pillows do you sleep with at night? It's the simple things we do to identify heart failure, or patient with new onset heart failure that hasn't been diagnosed. They don't have a 20-page medicine sheet with all the things that are prescribed or in place how do y'all when you look at a new patient that say they don't have a diagnosis of heart failure what are you, what clues do y'all use assessment wise or questions you may ask the patient to say lead you on that path of hey this is probably new onset heart failure or heart failure
1: i think one of the first things i do is touch the patient when you approach the patient put your hand on their wrist you're feeling their pulse while you're talking to them you're getting skin quality you're getting pulse quality you're getting pulse rate touch a leg on your way up as you're going up do they have edema is it pitting edema if it's someone who's not up and active often you may not see the big huge feet and the we call them cankles so all the edema may be sacrum back whatever but if you just kind of push on their leg and, okay, this person's got pitting edema, that's going to lead me down how many pillows? What all medicines do you take? How often do you, you know, your eating and drinking habits?
0: If I asked you how would you identify, how do you identify different stages of heart failure versus compensating versus decompensating? That yeah, so,
2: you know, you guys did a great job of de- uh, describing, you know, a compensated patient that's slowly becoming decompensated but i'll you know let's take a step back and kind of look at the definitions of what is the definition of um, cardiogenic shock or or acute heart failure and the patients that we're really trying to catch and not miss out on Um, you know like you said cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume and these patients have a deficit in in their cardiac output so if we look at the def the you know the exact definition Cardiogenic shock is defined as a cardiac index um, under 2.2 liters per minute per meter squared. And I like to look at cardiac index because then you're looking at body surface area. You know, you're 6'5". I'm 5'5", five, five. and so if somebody looks at both of our cardiac outputs, there might be a little bit of a difference there, but Should. I think both of us I look pretty so. good. I hope so. I hope there's a touch. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. And so, and so not, you know, I'm sick so I like I to look say, at the... So
1: say, are equal, he's going to be the color of them scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. And so if we're, you
2: know, so that's just right up front the definition, you know, a, a deficit in cardiac index. But what does that look like? Well, it looks like tissue hyperperfusion, and end organ dysfunction. So these patients will often have a systolic blood pressure. Blood pressure is not everything, but just kind of looking at objective parameters of less than 90-ish, or they need support to maintain that blood pressure in addition to the end organ perfusion, the elevated heart rate, the low urine output, and um, what we can get into later an elevated pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. So they have a high volume state. Um, For me, um, there's also the Forrester classification and, you know, this is what we're all taught, you know, through for us for med school. And I have a lot of friends that are medics and work. And then, you know, it's, it's essentially the, it's the two by two square and you have your patients that are warm and dry, right? Then you have warm and wet. So these patients are, they're perfusing, but they just have a lot of fluid on them and we need a diurese them then you have your patients that are cold and wet. And that's, those are patients that we're going to talk about today that, you know, what we need to recognize because these are patients, they have a lot of fluid on them, they're congested, and now they're not perfusing well. And they're entering that downward spiral. Um, and then even, even you know, um, what personally I feel are some of the most difficult patients are the patients that are cold and dry and we can definitely dive into those at a later time. Um, but just those kind of classifications immediately helps you recognize, you know, okay, where this patient is, um, how is their volume status.
0: And that, and that all starts with basic assessment. Exactly,
2: exactly. So I think 95% of treatment and recognition of heart failure and patients entering cardiogenic shock comes from the history and exam. You know, the labs, and the cath lab are great. I mean, I actually, I absolutely love a good right heart cath. You know, I love it, and I think everybody should have a swan. But some people I like may disagree. <laughs> <laughs> some, some people may disagree with me there. But but the history and 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 physical is is key. And and you know, your treatment should have started the minute you you see the patient. So for myself, right when I walk in the room, I know I, I try to my exam starts. Is the patient sitting up? Are they sitting up or are they laying perfectly flat you know are they short of breath sitting up are they able to complete full sentences when i'm having a discussion with them are they on bipap and still sitting up you know you've all seen those patients that are on bipap and they're leaning forward because they can't breathe you you don't even need to do an exam. You've you've just walked in the room and you've you you know where this patient is. You can
0: skip the stethoscope pretty much. <laughs> it's like, all right, cool. This ain't, this ain't uh, <laughs> something ain't working here. We got uh, we got a problem. Exactly.
2: But you know that's just walking in the room. But you know um, I like to talk to them, or if their family is nearby, you know, are they are they young? Young patients are you know they have they have a lot of reserves. So you have to be extremely careful with them. Um, they can mount much higher. Heart rates—they may look good, and then one minute later, they're they're crashing. So young patients have a very low threshold for. Um, I like to talk to family about, you know, how's their exercise tolerance been? Are they getting? Are they slowing down over the past few days? How's their appetite been? A lot of patients that are entering this, you know, acute heart failure stage, you know, their appetite's going down because they have so much gut edema. They're having cardiac cachexia or weight loss um a lot of nausea and vomiting you know i've actually you know we've actually we've all seen those patients that are being evaluated for their gallbladder and the whole time they have acute heart failure because they can't eat and they're vomiting after each meal and then you know what's their mental status a lot of family will tell you yeah you know my dad he's been sitting up on six pillows now he's he's not eating um he's getting very lethargic he's not moving around much and that paints a very different picture and you know this is just from the history and then the chronicity a lot of family know you know a lot of our patients may not know the term heart failure but they know yeah i take the fluid pill to get fluid off of my legs and so is this acute or is this chronic you know because if this is acute we need to act quickly their body's not used to this disease process and we need to move on um do you want me to go on with my exam
0: yeah so i mean like Mark, what are your thoughts on an exam real fast? When you, when you think about walking up to somebody and you say, hey, all right, I'm going to walk in the room, what, what are the first things you do as far as touching the patient?
1: Are they warm? Are they cool? Do they have a palpable pulse? Is there a pulsus paradoxus or a pulsus alternans? Uh, are they mentating? Are they making sense when I talk to them? If they're mentating, everything can kind of slow down a little bit and we can make sure everything, all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. If they're not mentating, then that you move into a different level. Um, what is their work of breathing? Are they, are they able to give me a full sentence or is it you know, a couple of words and stop and pause and breathe a second, a couple of words? Um, how are they tolerating whatever's going on right now as far as, are they on a cannula? Are they on high flow? Are they on BiPAP?
0: I think something really important you mentioned, Doc, was using the resources you have available. Using family, or even nursing staff, if you're in, you know, if you're in a nursing home, or even if you're in an ER and they may know this patient. Hey, we've been going to church with them for 20 years, or we, yeah, I see them every week at the supermarket, or whatever. How are they acting today? Or how are they acting the last couple of days? What led up to this event, again, trying to figure out, hey, is this a chronic problem? Or is this an acute exacerbation of the chronic problem? Or is this, like, truly an acute heart failure issue that we need to, like, get ahead of the eight ball and be proactive? What are some things you look for in exam? So my exam,
2: you know, now it's it's, I've gotten to the point where it's almost the same every time, just so I don't miss any steps, you know. Just like you mentioned, you walk in the room and you you know you look at the patient. How are they looking? How are they sitting up? But I go in. I will usually shake their hand if if they're able to. And while I'm doing that, I feel their pulse. I love that you mentioned pulses alternans. You know, it's extremely vital. So is their pulse strong? Do they have a very strong, consistent pulse, or is it fast and thready? You know, pulses alternans is is a is you have a normal cadence in your pulse, so they're not an afib, but you know, boom, boom, boom. And every other beat, or every third beat, or maybe three beats in a row, you have a decrease in that pulse, decrease in the amplitude, because the heart's having difficulty maintaining stroke volume. And that's also a great way to assess a patient day by day. So, you know, I'll you know feel a patient's pulse when they first arrive in the hospital, and they have pulses alternans, and as we begin therapy... The next day I come in, you know, pulse is normal now. But if things are going downhill, they have a thready pulse. Just from shaking their hand, feeling their pulse, you start building a picture and looking at them. So, you know, shaking their hand, feeling their pulse, and feeling all four extremities. You know, a lot of our patients have peripheral vascular disease. So, feeling their right leg may not be um, may not be a marker of universal hypoperfusion. They may have had a stent put in the right leg, and now they have, you know, now they don't have good good flow. And so you need to feel all their extremities. Are they cool? Um, after that, JVP—it's it's often difficult. But if you if you start looking at every patient, you'll start finding their JVP. You know, is it is it at the mandible? A lot of times, when I was when I first started training, I I'd be like I don't see any JVP, and my attending would be like, "Yeah, it's because it's past their earlobe," <laughs> and I'm looking at the base of the neck. Um, it's
0: not always textbook, but it can be textbook. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it can
2: be. Um, so, so you know, pulse, extremities, JVP, and then listening to the patient. Everyone has a stethoscope. You know, do they have a loud murmur? If they have a loud murmur, that changes your therapy. Um, do they have severe mitral regurgitation or aortic stenosis? Now you're treating these patients very differently. Listen to the lungs. Try to lay them back. If they, if you lay them back and they jump right back up you know they have a lot of volume on them um the abdominal exam we're kind of moving down is do they have a fluid wave do they have hepatosplenomegaly you know signs of right heart failure or long-term congestion
0: simple things like looking i'm glad you brought that up looking at their liver it's something i didn't used to do and i do it now pretty much in everybody because it tells you so much about whether it's a chronic medical patient or i do it mainly with heart failure like hey they got some kind of right side of heart failure or something else goofy. Just in their abdomen. It's something I used to Ah, oh, I'm only doing an on exam with their nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, whatever. No, nah, do it on everybody. Exactly. Um, and for me, like, when I walk in and do an exam, you try to do that systematic approach. Sometimes, like, when I'm flying, and Mark can back this up, one of us will walk to one side, one of us will walk to the other side. And we're basically doing a split somebody in half and do an assessment on both sides. But a lot of times what you'll see, and most people don't realize this is happening, is both of us will flip. And, you know, we flew together for a long, long time every night. And the difference was is we could kind of pick up on, hey, did you find this? Or hey, did you find this subtle assessment? But taking that systematic approach, like if I had it my way, I would always start on the patient's right side and I would look at the right and then work my way around to the left. And for me, that was the last thing I did was probably listen to heart sounds. But I could find everything else in the way to kind of lead me down that road of, hey, I think I hear a murmur. I think you hear something different. Is that what I'm actually hearing? Well, if I have all these other signs that go down that road, it's probably right.
2: Yeah, I think that's great. I know you kind of have to there's there. I mean, there's some some of us that have, you know, strict guidelines for how an exam should be done, but I think it's something you should do on like you mentioned every patient that's the only way you're going to build your skills you have to feel 500 normal livers to know what abnormal is and you know you need to have a system in your own built for you so that you don't miss things you know if you start on the right and 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 that's how you've done it every single time and you're you know that's working then then do that and build on that system and learn from others and just continue to build and and i think that's that's
1: I think the biggest teaching point here, and both of y'all have mentioned it, how many people out there see somebody walk around for an entire shift with a stethoscope around their neck and it never leaves? You have to listen to everybody. Listen to every set of lungs. Listen to every heart. Push on every belly. You have to hear a thousand permutations of normal To recognize abnormal. And I have people ask me, well, how do you tell if it's a systolic murmur or diastolic? Who cares? Did you hear something that ain't right? And point it out to somebody, hey, this ain't right, we need to work on it. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing we can do in any emergency setting is just, you don't have to pin a name on all the abnormals. Just recognize, this is not normal, we need to move it at least towards normal, if not fix it.
0: And it's bringing it back to some of those things we've said before. Early identification of, hey, this is a problem. Hey, we want to make sure we don't fall off the cliff, we don't jump off the cliff, we don't do that downward spiral. We make sure we're identifying the patient, we've talked about assessment, that's cold and wet. Those are the ones that, hey, are we going down this slippery slope of bad day?
1: Look, how many times have you and I put that ultrasound on a heart and both of us look at it and go i don't know what it is but somebody better at this than me <laughs> needs to look at it you know it's, that that just don't
0: look right i, yeah, don't, I, just, I don't know that don't look and, right
1: and we would we'd roll into the er the icu whatever like okay somebody else look at this and tell me what i'm looking at and and
2: before we jump to ultrasound because that's it's, you know that's a, a a great piece of our exam now that we have a tool for us two other things before i forget to mention you know, you guys are in the front line and, and get vital information that often is not available to us. So going back to the history, you know, when there's a patient that is that is crashing and will you think is gonna end up on ECMO or will need some kind of destination therapy or bridge, you know, um, like an LVAD or transplant and the family's there, it's also very important to know, you know, what kind of social support does this patient have? What's their home situation like? Because that helps us downstream uh, it gives us more options towards an exit strategy, you know, is this somebody had, that has end stage dementia? You know, that's a patient that you may want to be more conservative on depending on the family's goals of care and wishes. Um, so certainly, you know, getting that piece of the history is key and with y'all in the front line, you get a lot of this well before we do. And the other thing that I forgot to mention is, is generally y'all are picking up patients from other hospitals or bringing them to us is when you walk in the room and you see the vitals um, the, the the pulse pressure you know a lot of a lot of these patients you know like we mentioned they're sitting up they can't breathe they're on BiPAP, they got cool extremities pulses alternans, uh, crackles in the lungs um, you know gut edema swollen extremities it's a sick patient but also if they have a narrow pulse pressure so if they're you know if their blood pressure is 120 over 90 that's that's really <laughs> bad I hope it's not that bad but just exaggerating there but you know a narrow pulse pressure is a sign that they're not able to inject enough blood um, and their stroke volume is going down so uh, something we don't want to forget and if they have an arterial line I mean you can see a perfect visualization of of pulses alternans You'll, you look at the A-line waveform and, you know, you have, you know, it's just oscillating, you know, one, one uh, wider pulse pressure than a, uh, a narrow pulse pressure with a decrease, you know, and you can see that change in amplitude on an A-line. Um, also, the, the upstroke of the A-line when you're looking at it, you know, how, what's the, the DP over DT is, is, you know, is that A-line shooting straight up or, you know, the waveform yeah. the wave can give you a lot of information too
0: think a lot of um, well, that
1: defends all these art lines we put. Yeah, in I was just say we put <laughs> we put a ton of art lines in, and people question it a lot of time. And I think it's well, I, here there's your cuff pressure. It's, we're looking at more than a pressure.
2: Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. When if you have a patient that is an extremist, you know, um, a, a sick patient that is that air care is being called for. I mean, that patient absolutely needs an A-line. I love it when you guys put them in. It makes my life much easier. And I'll go as far as saying, and, and you know, a patient that we're treating for cardiogenic shock, an A-line, and for me, at the minimum, a, a central, uh, CV, uh, central venous access through the internal jugular is key because now you can monitor CVP. So, you know, when we're trying to look at JVP, that's what we're trying to estimate. But now... You have a you got a right IJ and I can hook it up to a pressure monitor and boom I have CVP I know exactly what they' at least a good estimate of what their filling pressures are um, and it allows me to tailor my therapy
0: It's something a lot of us use we, we've we had an episode on vital signs but all this stuff you can trend which is cool to me is understanding you mentioned CVP with IJs and hey I started here now where am I going or pulse pressure for me is something I when you first go through paramedic school or nursing school or oh, great this isn't a textbook am i ever going to see it or ever going to use it and pulse pressure you can trend every day of the week on an art line and it can make it you can hey look i'm doing the right thing or hey this ain't working yet something we got to fix hey my stroke volume is not very well you put them on debetamine or milrinone or whatever or just put them on levo or something hey am i getting better stroke volume or better cardiac output um a lot of people don't understand that remember it's a vital signs are just a picture in time if you use them as a trend you can really see hey is my treatment pathway working in our world we don't always have the pleasures of the right heart casts and wedge pressures and all the fun stuff you get access to yeah uh, if you can figure out how to put that on a helicopter that'd be great <laughs> i wish i wish
2: bring me bring me on for a few rides <laughs> and I'll, I'll work on it
1: yeah in, in our world we fight a lot of times that people get locked into this snapshot and it's I say it all the time. One number is absolutely meaningless. It's which way is this number trending over time? Is it responding to our treatment? Is it not responding? I mean, that can be just as important. I love the the IJ. Chet, you need to get us permission for those two. But I guess I'm aging myself here. We used to put a patient at 45 degrees and actually measure the JV mm-hmm. rise and you're estimating a pressure, but you could go by that and okay, the next day come in and oh, it's a little lower. We are offloading them a little bit mm-hmm. or they are building up a little bit, whichever the case may be. But yeah, that's
2: no, I'm, I'm glad you guys uh, brought up the word trends because everything we just discussed, it, it can't be looked at in a vacuum. The history is a trend. The exam is a trend, which way are is this patient trending, you know? Are things getting worse? Where were they? No, these values can't be looked at in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You know, you may, you may, you know, somebody may be like, man, I'm really worried about you. You know, you were you were, uh, lifting two plates in the gym and now you're down to one. Well, whereas me, you know, that'd be a great trend. You know, I might start with one plate and you know, so wh- which way are we heading and where did we start? Where did the patient start? Where did the lab start? Where did their exam start? And that's also very vital in handoff. You know, when you guys are picking up a patient, that handoff is is extremely key.
0: So we talked a lot about identifying and simple things we use for exam and history and uh, how we say, hey, this patient might be in heart failure. Do you want to talk a little bit about, as far as classifications of when, for you, when do you say, hey, they're coming off the spiral or this is a real problem?
2: Yeah, sure. So... So kind of going, jumping back, um, you know, at UMC right now, we're working on bringing and on creating a shock team, which should be um, ready to go pretty soon here. And, and you'll see a lot of the studies and a lot of the classifications now there are based on the SCAI classification system, SCAI, and there's a lot of papers on that. And, and the classification has a lot to do with the patient's clinical status and their mortality. Um, and essentially it's class A. These patients are, you know, they look great, hemodynamically stable, um, and A just stands for at risk of heart failure, you know, so clinically somebody, stable, some, compensated, some, yeah, doing somebody great. somebody might see a
0: clinic or something coming from another Exactly, kind of...
2: exactly, and then you have class B, so SKY class B, and that's a patient that maybe has some evidence of instability, um, the beginning of cardiogenic shock, they're becoming tachycardic. You know, there's starting to look a little sick to you. After that's class C, and this is a patient that has evidence of hypoperfusion. So the patient that we've been discussing, you know, his cool extremities, maybe he's starting to require pharmacologic support with inotropes and MCS is starting to come into the picture. Class D is deteriorating. Um, and this is a patient that has clinical evidence of shock that is not improving despite escalation of therapy. So things are going downhill. And then E is extremis. And that is a patient that's in refractory shock. Um, they're about to code. You know, things are really bad. Either they're on ECMO or we are very much moving towards ECMO now. Um, and so it's a good communication scheme for us in the hospital. Like, hey, have a patient in extremis or class D sky. Um, and it's a good way to to look back at patients too when you're, because we like to learn from our mistakes and our cases of success. And so it's a, you know, I think that classification system, you're going to hear more and more about. And then like we already discussed kind of the clinical classifications, like the Forrester classification or uh, things of that sort. But really I think for us.
0: Um, and most, in, most of our patients are going to fall in that. The ones that you see in the ER that, hey, this is an, they call it an acute exacerbation or it was the C's. So they, they're requiring CPAP, they're requiring or BiPAP. Um, they may have some kind of hemodynamic requirement, but it's usually low-dose or basics. we're not talking super high-speed. They're not on five-pressers. They're not all the Abbey pumps. They're not a whole Christmas tree full of all things that light up. Mm. They're not intubated, per se. Usually it's heart failure, secondary, some other kind of insult, or it may just be a, I say basic, but run-of-the-mill case. Mm-hmm. I think that's most what everybody's gonna see. When you start seeing the beginnings of refractory shock or they're requiring a whole lot more tropes, when you start, hey, what I'm doing is not working and they're getting worse, those are the ones, the early recognition will make a difference on how they walk out of the hospital. Or exactly. how they come out of hospital or if things. Things. If. Oh, God,
2: the hospital. So if we absolutely, you know, in the state of Mississippi, want to capture those patients in stages C to E. I mean, really, we we want to take care of all of them. But as a tertiary care center, and with y'all being in air care, we we cannot miss on those patients that are, in, you know, stages C, D, E, and E because things can things can move very quickly if the appropriate treatment and
0: is not. Um, if if we don't get proactive and we don't more get proactive if, with if their if we're treatment reactive with we don't
2: we don't recognize it which all we've been talking about is recognition because
1: that's that's key but the early treatment it falls back on if you're not paying attention you don't recognize these little cues you're going to let a patient slip from b to c or c to e mm-hmm. yeah.
2: absolutely
0: so real quick let's we've we talked about slipping and how we're moving i just want to talk about left and right heart failure biggest thing is identifying they're in heart failure Um, we've kind of talked about you got to intervene you got to make a proactive approach to this it's not as important i mean it is important to understand left versus right heart failure but the biggest step in that is identifying this is heart failure a lot of people i think get wrapped around the axle of hey this is a this is right ventricular heart failure this is left ventricular heart failure from a basic rural hospital standpoint or a basic ems standpoint biggest takeaway is hey recognize this is heart failure from your initial assessment and then we can work our way into what it is
2: yes now i i I love treating you know doing um, heart failure fellowship next year i love treating rv failure because it gets very nuanced there's a lot involved with it but you know a lot of the exams i mean you know kind of stereotypical right-sided heart failure exams elevated jvp hepatomegaly ascites. Um, if they're in, if they're in some kind of obstructive shock, like a PE, then they're definitely going to have those signs in a much more acute settings and their lungs may be clear because, you know, they have obstructive shock from a PE, from RV failure. So, but, you know, just for, for, for much of the state recognizing acute heart failure this patient is spiraling is, is what's vital um, early on. And then, do you want to jump into some of the labs or? or yeah, let's like let's right talk now. about a few
0: labs. I mean, again, labs to me, they're great. They have their place, but they're not always available. So, assessment is one of the That's true. things everybody can pay attention to. But if you have labs, by all means, use them. Let's let's talk about a few of them we we use or that are commonly available.
2: Yeah. So, so once again everything we talk about is a trend. We need to know the trends of these patients. You know, if a patient is CKD3 and their creatinine's three versus a patient whose creatinine was one yesterday, that's a, a game changer. But, you know, right off the bat, um, when it comes to objective, objective data, um, aside from just labs, you know, the EKG, you know, is this a STEMI? Because now that changes, you know, they need to go to the cath lab immediately. Do they have massive ST elevations in all the leads. It's this is myocarditis um, that the patient has because that changes our treatment and we need to get them to our center and, and treat them for myocarditis. Labs specifically, so what's the definition of uh, of heart, of cardiogenic shock is hypoperfusion. So which labs will reflect that? Well if you look at a BMP, um, their creatinine you know, are the kidneys being perfused? I, I absolutely have to have um, LFTs to look at because these patients start having hepatic dysfunction. The lactate, you know, lactate um, is a big marker of mortality. In addition to showing, you know, how how severe this patient is, so what's the trend of the lactate? Um, I like to look at their bicarb. Um, their bicarb level and lactate tell me a lot about about hypoperfusion and how the patient's doing. Lastly, I say lastly, but the troponin, you know, in this case, it's going to be elevated 99.9% of the time, but you know, you had an EKG with massive ST elevations and a, um, I guess, a, the previous generation of troponin of of 30. Now we're thinking about myocarditis. It's a it's a very high troponin level, so it can help cue you in as to what's going on. Gone, and it's great to have those set of labs because when we receive the patients, we know if our therapy is you know trending things in the right or wrong direction.
0: Something I, would, I want to bring up specifically with troponins, and we're talking about heart failure. It's a snapshot in time. So, trending a troponin, hey, we've all gotten this transfers over the years, or um, hey, I got a bump troponin. Cool, we're going to send them to a tertiary care facility or a facility that has a cath lab because they may need a cath tomorrow. It's an in-stemi or whatever. Being mindful of, hey, that's a patient you have to watch. It's not they ruled out for a STEMI. It's they may have a bump troponin from any number of different things. They can't clear it. Their renal function's junk. They've had some kind of cardiac insult, whatever it may be, but looking at those patients and try to find the reason why that troponin's bumped, is it bumped for some other reason or is it some kind of thing? Hey, we need to look for the root cause of this problem.
2: Uh, Absolutely. You know, for, for, I, I don't put a lot of weight on the troponin. I mean, I do, don't get me wrong. You know, it's a very vital lab, but it's, I mean, it's just one number in isolation and it. I mean it can it can go up for a variety of reasons as we all know.
1: One you have to pay attention to where was this troponin ran. Uh, and I mean what lab different lab assays or whatever you want to call it their norms versus this norm versus that norm and it seems like every hospital has a different you know this is my upper limit of normal to me that kind of invalidates the importance of a troponin because if it was that important why isn't everyone on the exact same page and running the exact same exam Uh, any number of reasons to bump that troponin we've walked in pick up a patient and it's a trauma patient well their troponin was bumped well you know, they just hit a steering wheel at eighty miles an hour. It's gonna be bump.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean
1: that BNP, same thing. Their is fifty thousand. Well, they got a grocery sack Omeds over here. Mm-hmm. How long has it been fifty thousand? You know. Yeah, and the
2: pro BNP. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that number is is great to trend. But yes. in isolation, it's it's difficult. Now, you know, if I see 50,000, 60,000, I'm like, oh man, this, <laughs> this is looking bad. <laughs> we gotta but in but definitely in the outpatient setting, um, you know, we use it a lot to see if we're heading in the right direction because we want to get that to as close to normal as possible, um, especially in, in heart failure clinic. But in, with, you know, with acute shock patients, uh, you know, I, my exam has told me what I need to know rather than, rather than, um, the BNP, I probably put more weight in on on, on their LFTs, lactate renal function, because that's really going to tailor my therapy and the medications that I'm going to give. And um, if they have a right IJ, a mixed venous, I know we don't use that in all of the centers in in Mississippi, but it's, you know, a mixed venous is essentially looking at how much oxygen has been extracted from the blood. And with a patient in cardiogenic shock, you know, this blood's not moving too quickly, and that mixed venous is going to be very low. A normal mixed venous is 65 70% or so. But, you know, once we have a right IJ, and, and, and a mixed venous must be assessed from a central venous catheter. You know, it's, and... Um, you can't
0: take it from a peripheral IV no, in their hand. It yeah, it I work don't know.
2: Well. <laughs> no, not from a peripheral. So it has to be a central venous uh, catheter, preferably in the RA or below you know in the cath lab we check it from the PA but you you know you can't have that from a from a a central from central access from just the ER Um, but having a mixed venous because the low mixed venous you know you have a patient with a mixed venous of 38 40 a that allows me to calculate the cardiac index there's formulas for that and b I know this patient's extremely sick and I and I would love I trending that number is vital because once we start talking about treatment, I mean, my exam, the labs, and the mixed venous all play a part in whether I know if my treatment is, is, is working correctly. Because I want to see all of those trend in the right direction. So, that's wanted to just may, may, uh, throw that out there.
1: Keep in mind, when you're talking about a mixed venous, you have to look for the cause for that number. Um, if you have a mixed venous sat that's real high is that because you're pumping them you get their pao2 up to 400 or is that because they're in such a shock state that they're not delivering any o2 to the tissues yeah. you have you have to I, take into account both sides of that right what could be, the, the, right, what what could be the causes on. i'm glad of you brought numbers. that up
2: because i have a very 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 low threshold to evaluate all of you know i'm i'm, I'm a cardiologist so you know, we often just think about the heart, but I have a very low threshold for broad spectrum antibiotics when I'm suspicious of septic shock. A lot of our patients are in cardiogenic and septic shock. Mm -hmm. And what sepsis will do is now you have vasodilatory shock. And so these patients may be warmer Mm -hmm. and their mixed venous um, will be higher. So, you know, routinely we take care of patients that have a mixed venous of 60 percent an ejection fraction of 15 percent well and and your clinical exam is still consistent with shock well they probably have mixed shock and so you know, it is extremely vital to think about everything that um that part that
0: look uh, at the holistic picture yeah, exactly that, just that it's one
1: disease there's a lot of contributory factors there. yes and i think we pick up a lot of begins as septic shock develops into a mixed septic and cardiogenic exactly like you just said it's somebody doesn't get in front of the eight ball early and now we've gone from b to say d in the classification system
0: to bring back that sky score you have somebody that's an a on an everyday basis they've got some they're hypertensive they have some kind of baseline insult and then you throw in Hey, now they got an infected foot or a decubitus, or they're in a really bad car wreck, and it just throws them over the edge, and then they start doing that whole spiral thing, and you get that again. You like you mentioned that mixed shock picture. I like how you worded that mixed shock picture um, to see. Hey, this is chicken or the egg, but you got to treat both at the same time. Make sure you get on board. And...
2: Yeah. So definitely have a very low threshold to to look at the whole picture. Because you don't, you miss sepsis. I mean, you know, we've done a great job of treating sepsis in this state. Wonderful job. But sometimes, you know, you know we, we're, we're, we go, especially, I'm, I'm blaming myself, I go down the rabbit hole on cardiogenic shock. You forget, forget about the whole picture. So mixed shock is something we can definitely have three more podcasts on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, oh,
2: yeah. But going back, you know, we were talking about labs. So we, we talked about our labs, and then earlier you all brought up um, POCUS. You know the emergency department, our air care, and really everyone in the front line is is doing an amazing job of using ultrasound. And I wanted to make sure we at least talked about it briefly and um, and kind of what I look for on ultrasound. so for, for for me, you know i've you've done the physical exam, you have the history. You know your diagnosis, and now you really need to confirm what you believe. Um, and that's, you know, especially with the butterfly and things like this, ultrasound so widely available. You have to know. It. If you don't know how to use it, you're doing yourself a disservice. But YouTube's you know,
0: your friend, and there's all kinds of different resources now. Exactly, Man, It's easy. Exactly. It's really easy to get ahead of
2: it. It is. It is. Um, for, personally, I'll start with the peristernal long or the apical four. And right off the bat, I look at, okay, what's their LV look like? What's their overall ejection fraction? And it does, you know, we're just looking at mildly reduced, moderately, severely reduced. Boom. If you're able to, throw some color on. Look at the mitral valve. You know, did you hear a loud murmur on your exam? And now can you see that on ultrasound? Because that's going to change the way you treat this patient. and We'll discuss that, you know, when we get there. And then look at the right heart. We're just discussing right heart failure. I mean, if you have ultrasound available, You know a subcostal apical four those those views will immediately show you what what the right heart's looking like like is it large and dilated you know do they have a pericardial effusion are they in tamponade so that's kind of where you know how my my exam goes and then i'll go to the abdomen and also make sure to look at the ivc um that's something that i like to trend too you know is their ivc three centimeters barely moving uh, when they breathe with their uh, respiratory cycle that's a patient that's extremely volume up. And if you see a you know, if you see a RV that's severely dilated with McConnell's sign, IVC's blown open, this all happened yesterday after they went on a long drive or a big airplane ride, that you know, your diagnosis is yeah. you got it from the history, yeah. you confirmed yeah, he's it with happening. ultrasound. Exactly. You know, you got it from the history, you confirmed it with ultrasound and your labs and everything should fall into place.
1: What are your thoughts? using the ultrasound, cardiac ultrasound. Everything you read says have them on their left side, leaning forward, whatever. Everything you can do to move the heart closer to the chest wall. We, I'm not going to say never, but I'm going to say almost never, are able to place a patient in an optimal position. They're typically flat or Heads elevated, 20, 30 degrees, and that, those are our choices.
2: No, honestly, get the views you need. I don't, you know, when I'm evaluating a patient in, in the emergency department on BiPAP that's uncomfortable, I'm not going to tell them, hey, can you can you get lateral recumbent and put your arm behind your head? Yeah. That optimizes views in a situation where I can't see things and I'm desperate to, you know, maybe they have, I'm trying to look for a wall motion abnormality and the EKG is unclear but that's all just to optimize views that's great you know in the setting of the you know the echo tech is trying to get the, the best views for us and we're trying to be objective but in the in the acute care setting that will help you it's good to know that you know laying them left lateral recumbent having their left arm behind their head may help you get views but if you're getting great views from them sitting up then then that's all you need this is just to supplement your exam and and everything else you've seen
0: Something to bring you back to, hey, is it hypokinetic or just basic, hey, this looks okay, or this is more advanced. You can start with the peristernal long axis, but that doesn't mean you can't move that probe around or fan however you need to to get the view you want. When I teach people or I'm talking to people about ultrasound views, because of the world I learned in, which is a, you know, back of an aircraft move, moving at night, usually, it was hey find the view start here know where to start but don't be afraid to move your probe into somewhere as long as you can identify a reference and know where you are and know what you're looking at move your probe to fit your fit your world a lot of our patients we can't do the subcostal view i mean it doesn't, doesn't matter whether it's in a you know when for you
1: an look 18 months pregnant you just can't get there no, no you can't that
2: that's kind of why i like the apical four also it can yeah. be a, it can be easier um but I would advise everyone. I mean, there's great courses on YouTube, and there's a lot of material online, on similar platforms. What you guys are doing right now, um, on on the basics of an ultrasound exam, and and just do it on the normal patients. If you do, a, if you just like your clinical you, exam, if you, you gotta you're, see the normals to recognize. You know, when I was a uh, when I was uh, in my intern year, I remember I would just grab the ultrasound. That was also we didn't have as much of a standardized curriculum then. There were only a few ultrasounds. I would just go from like room to room and just throw the probe on. I, I was like, you know, I remember one of the med students like, how do you find an IVC? I was like, you know, I just spent, I just went into like these four rooms and and asked the patients if it was okay and just sat there for thirty minutes in each room and, and found it. And then I can then I watched a YouTube video, and then now we have a, a curriculum on it. But you have to practice your skills because you know when it comes down to this acute setting and your adrenaline is, is high and the patient is, is in shock and they're overweight and things like that, it becomes tough in that setting.
0: I like the, for me, it's the peristernal long axis and the apical floor. Two of the views I've used a lot because, one, we have access to them. We can get them really easily. Some of the th- questions I ask myself when I'm looking at a heart is, what's working harder? Is How's the left ventricle working? Is it working harder than it should be? Is it not working very hard? Is it not moving or not moving hardly at all? Um and the same with the right ventricle I, the ventricles to me tell you a lot um color mode's really hard to do when you're moving unfortunately um but that being said sometimes you just have to take the two seconds where where you are if you're in a rural hospital and you can get the patient to stay still take the two seconds whip on ultrasound and look um see if you can see that kind of stuff and
1: going back to the whole trends conversation i know you and i have done it walk in find a patient insignificant heart failure cardiogenic shock put ultrasound on their heart okay it's not moving we're going to do this this and this get 30 45 minutes into it look again Ooh, we actually have some contraction now we're yeah we're not cardiologists but we know we're moving in the right direction
0: oh, yeah absolutely you walk in the door i, I remember a distinct case we've had where heart rate's 140 and it's a mixed shock picture. They're septic as well, but their heart rate's 140 because they're trying to compensate for cardiac output purely there. And, cause, and we figured it out because we literally put a probe on them and we we're at this wonderful hospital that has a sonocyte similar to we have in the ER with a huge screen. It's high definition. We, oh, just, yes. we, we were straight up cheating. Um, oh yeah. No, no, don't really fool you. Our, our sonocytes are like this big, yeah, you know. But we put it on there and we're like, okay, this, this thing ain't moving. Like this is, this is cardiogenic too, definitely. Mm-hmm. And Put them on several, several different pressers. Put them on inotrope. I said, "Hey, look, let's see what happened." Heart rate came down. You could tell the stroke volume came up because their their heart's actually moving now. You can see wall motion. Everything's chilling like it should. What about B lines? What's your thoughts on B lines? Any but both of y'all? I
2: I do I do periodically. Um, I should more. So I'm not you know. I'm. I just. I haven't as much, but I definitely should use them. You know, look at the lungs more than I do. Um, But they're definitely helpful in once again building the whole picture. Um, If you see a. If you see a globally dilated LV and it's barely pumping, IVC is big, and now you have B lines in the lungs. You know, it's just building that picture that this patient is in volume overload.
1: Um, I'm. I'm with you. It's another uh, confirmatory. Of, okay, I, I see this, 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 and this. Yep, that agrees with me and keep, you know, kind of like a chest X-ray. I mean, there's a bunch of pulmonary edema there. Yeah, I figured that out a few minutes ago, you know.
0: And then also just, we're talking radiology, we talk about chest X-rays or CTs for that matter. How was the chest X-ray taken? Were they sitting upright or were they laying flat? Oh, they got a... Uh, i'll never forget the one we went in there and they said oh they got a hemothorax in the chest tube well it's bilateral and they're on this many drugs you sure that's not just heart failure well, they were in a wreck yeah but what caused the wreck was it the chf exacerbation that they are literally having lv failure have a chronic exacerbation of it and now we are full of all kinds of nastiness in our lungs
2: you yeah, know definitely uh, I, I mean you so know so ch- chest x-ray is that's true. I mean, you have to know how it was taken, and then it can be extremely helpful too in in building that picture. Like you said, pulmonary edema. Do they have cardiomegaly on the chest X-ray? Is their heart blown open? Um, you know, taking up two thirds of the whole uh, chest field. And you know, also try to take a look at at the you know is there mediastinal widening? You know, do they have any aortic pathology like a dissection or anything? Because you know, an acute type A dissection, those patients will, will quickly go down the spiral and, and, and you know end up in cardiogenic shock from poor perfusion or severe AI or things of that sort. So chest x ray is also a great tool, like all of these things, and they all build on your history and clinical exam.
1: Remember when you're looking at a chest x ray, make sure the patient's flat. Because if they're rotated just a little bit, it'll make that mediastinum look wide when it's not. And we've gone to pick people up. Oh, they got a wide mediastinum. We can't get a CT today. And you get there and you look at it. They're not flat. Let's shoot another one. And you get them rotated a little bit. And it's like, okay, we're good.
2: Yeah. I've done that before. I won't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this has been part one of two on our series with Audie and Mark on heart failure. Be sure to check out our next episode, which is heart failure treatment, pumping it up.